0: Why don't they make the whole president out of the black box?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: what, do they, do they, what do they think of that. What's the deal? What's the That's do-
1: so stupid. It's it very
0: funny. What's the deal with that? The, quick, the quickest cold open in human history. They
1: call um, him 32nd... <laughs> what did they call you?
0: Oh, dude. Do don't, first of all, they, don't, they she just called me that. And that was from <laughs> when I was super young. And no, that was like a... it's, a, it's hyperbolic.
1: Hello, but, everyone. <sighs>
0: Hi, everyone, except for one person who called me that stupid bullshit.
1: <laughs> My name is Liz.
0: My name, you already know, is... Uh, Brace Because I say it every episode We have producer Young Chopsy with us
1: (laughs) Uh, Welcome everyone, True and On The last episode, the last and final installment We are going to kill ourselves
0: Right after we finish this This is the (laughs) last episode of True and On We are recording this from my Chevrolet The garage door is closed Key is in Turn Turn the engine over This is it
1: yeah that's not and that's not gonna happen but it is true the rumors are true this is the final installment um if you're you're all still listening to the series thank you so much we had a real blast doing it um but before i get into all that sappy sad stuff listen to the episode
0: Welcome to Faxylvania.
1: What?
0: Faxylvania. Faxylvania. Yeah does Does it not come through with the accent? Let me try. Welcome to Faxylvania. I have to pronounce, enunciate it more. No, doesn't work. I'm going to try it the third time. (laughs) More
1: so than like thinking (laughs) of like it just reminds me of like I want to say facts of life Uh, rather than Transylvania.
0: Well, we have with us here Factula aka independent researcher Ben and I didn't uh whew, all right who's the other uh Faktenstein we have with us Faktenstein aka Aaron Good a scholar who earned his PhD writing about U.S. hegemony elite criminality in the deep state his dissertation being published soon by Sky Horse Skyhorse Publishing. The link will be in the I want to say bio but it's the description of the podcast not the biography. Uh and we also have a werewolf here but the mics off. Um we have been we have been talking. This is our 39th hour of recording
2: <laughs> about the JFK
0: <laughs> deep event. And we have covered everything from what we got Lee Harvey Oswald. We got JFK's foreign policy. We got the mafia. We got the CIA. We have big business. We got Lee Harvey Oswald doing some kooky, creepy stuff. We got Jack Ruby. We got the Warren Commission. Bam. All that's behind us. But the public still doesn't believe the official story. And uh, and the thing is, Warren Commission may have acted like it had the first, well, it did have the first, and last word on the the JFK assassination. But it certainly was not the actual last word. I phrased that so awkwardly that if you can understand what I just said right then, then you're too smart to be listening to this podcast. What I'm saying here is it ain't over. And uh, and there are quite a few other people who, much like I'm sure you and definitely your parents and maybe your grandparents, have their third eye. And actually, to be fair, you don't even need the third eye for this one. Just either literally, you can use one eye open for this. And uh, we're suspicious of the official narrative. And so uh, we talked about Kilgallen uh, to round out the last episode, and I think that kind of set us on a good course for, uh, for what we're going to be talking about in this, uh, this final installment, and, uh, and that is critics of the official narrative and, uh, and sort of the aftermath of the Warren Commission and the years that rolled past. Because uh, because while while Kilgallen might have been one of the first people to be taken out, um, you know, for for questioning the narrative for, get, for getting too close to the truth, she was certainly not the only person either taken out or smeared or to question it. And so that is uh, that's a little what we're going to get into today.
1: Well, I think we should probably start when we're talking about critics. We should probably start with uh, a man named James Garrison, Jim Garrison, um, as he went by. He's become kind of. Uh, infamous because of Oliver Stone's documentary or not documentary, Oliver Stone's movie, kind of like a documentary uh, JFK, which, which takes a lot of um, a lot of it is based off of uh, Jim Garrison's book. I I believe on the trail of the assassins. Um, But Garrison was basically the first to bring the case, (laughs) like a case against uh, who he believed was one of the conspirators um, and kind of put the kennedy assassination on trial he was uh the new orleans da at the time right
2: right he um was and he had actually been involved with the case pretty soon after it happened uh because of strange events in new orleans and um on the day that kennedy is killed um you have david ferry who's who's maneuvers on uh, the 22nd of november are very strange and you also have the incident depicted in oliver stone's jfk where uh, guy banister is very drunk and he goes back to his private detective office um and he pistol whips jack martin and accuses him of going through his files and um Jack Martin says something about to the effect of like, you're going to kill me like you killed Kennedy or something like that, or, or, or it makes some a, a reference to the Kennedy assassination. And this is, you know, uh, Bannister's infuriated. He's a, he's a drunk and a hard right winger and, you know, kind of a nut in his own right. And, uh, so he puts Martin in the hospital and Martin starts talking to people about some of the things that he had seen going on at uh, guy Bannister's office including that oswald you know had been had been there he, he, he eventually reveals that later to garrison but that um you know he one of the things he tells the fbi pretty early is that he thought that Ferry had uh you know somehow hypnotized oswald at some point and so he says these things that are not totally reliable but it actually gets um it, it starts people looking into new orleans and so they investigate the Warren commission even investigates some of the people and the FBI investigates uh, the events around, um, around new Orleans. And then a couple of years. So, and and around that time, Garrison talks to David Ferry himself. And Ferry has this very strange story about going to a roller skating rink or going uh, goose hunting first. And then he changes it to going to an ice skating rink. uh, And he had to have driven through like a pouring rain to do this. And so it didn't really make any sense, Mm -hmm. but, Um, then the FBI just sort of told Garrison not to worry about it. And Garrison just assumed that the FBI would take care of whatever there was and they, nothing else came of it. So he put it out of his mind for a while. And eventually he talks to uh, Senator um, Russell Long, right. Of um, Louisiana, who is, I believe that he's a Senator at the time and he's the son of Huey Long. And he tells uh, Mm. him about his doubts about the Warren commission and how it's all you know, uh, just uh, uh, some sort of fable that's also depicted in, uh, in JFK. And uh, this gets Garrison looking more into the New Orleans uh, milieu that Oswald was a part of. And he uncovers a whole lot of interesting connections with Oswald that don't make much sense, uh, according to the Oswald uh, lone nut conclusion of the of the Warren Commission.
0: So in, even from the beginning, Garrison's office was pretty thoroughly penetrated by uh, by intelligence agencies.
2: So around New Orleans, his first suspect was actually Ferry. He would have wanted to talk to Bannister. Um, one of the things he discovers early on by looking at the Warren Commission volumes and studying them, I mean, this is what really convinces him that there is more going on in this case, is he actually reads those 26 long and tedious volumes that we had (laughs) been talking about, which I think that's, I respect that because I hate reading things that are boring. And I, I, but that's like almost superhuman to read that. And he did. And he noticed some strange things about new Orleans. Uh, David Ferry was his initial suspect because of what had happened in the past uh, with on the day of the assassination and around the time of the assassination. And he also uncovers uh, something very strange about Oswald's fair play for Cuba Activities that were very spectacular from a, you know, from a spectacle point of view, but not at all, you know, making any sense from a political organizing point of view. This guy comes from Dallas, loses his pregnant wife and just discredits the Fair Play Committee, uh, Fair Play for Cuba Committee and he's passing out pamphlets. And we already talked about this a little bit that he gets into this confrontation and it leads to this, uh, this debate on the radio where it's revealed that he was a Marxist. And so he sort of taints the fair play for Cuba committee with, uh, you know, communism and Soviet influence. And, um, on one of the pamphlets that he had been handing out, he had the address of 44 camp street, which was really the same building as 531 Lafayette street, which is where, um, Guy Bannister worked and where like things like uh, mongoose operations had been staged out of before they were shut down. Uh, he was a member of the world of the Caribbean anti-communist league. He was part of the super right-wing Minutemen. He was a hardcore segregationist who hated Kennedy for civil rights. I mean, this is a guy who would have no use for a former Soviet defector communist working with him. And so uh, it's, Garrison sees this rightly as being very suspicious. Um, Why is he working here? Additionally, there's an episode in the Warren Commission report where uh, this this lawyer named Dean Andrews, who's basically a pretty low-level lawyer who helps get people off on sex charges and things like that. He's played by John Candy in, Mm -hmm. in Oliver Stone's JFK. And he recalls yeah. Oswald being there and bringing in a few Cubans to help with like, um, immigration issues or maybe some sex charges that they'd been, uh, dealing with. And, um, oh, he, yeah. he, he, he strikes up a conversation about, Hey, I have a uh, discharge and I would like to get it changed to an honorable discharge instead of what had maybe been a medical hardship discharge. And how would I go about doing that? Yeah, it was. And so he, you know, has some conversations with, um, With Dean Andrews about this. And it's also strange because he is, he's just an ex Marine, supposedly there to do some strange political things, but he appears to have been charged with bringing these Cubans to help get them some legal support. And these are, of course, you know, likely to be anti Castro Cubans and such. And so he's being used as some sort of gopher, you know, in some way. And he's working out of Bannister's office. And um you know talking to this lawyer and running errands for somebody who knows who well uh, when uh, oswald gets arrested and is being held in jail dean andrews gets a call from someone he identifies as clay bertrand or clem bertrand and uh he it's not explained in the warren commission uh, volumes who that is but this person is saying hey could you Represent Oswald. He's going to need some legal representation. And this guy's the last mm. person that would ever be representing someone in a big case like this. Like, it's very strange that this person, uh, this Clem Bertrand person, would uh, call Dean Andrews, of all people. And it's odd that he would take a personal interest in um, Oswald. But Dean Andrews has the understanding that he, that it was Bertrand who had sent Oswald to his office previously to run these errands, you know, involving these, these Cubans and their legal problems. So he starts to try to figure out who this guy is. And we know later that the FBI had already figured out as early as, you know, in the, in the immediate aftermath of the assassination, that it was actually this fellow named Clay Shaw, who was former OSS, uh, and the head of the Dallas, uh, uh-huh. the world trademark, which is sort of a big uh, Rockefeller and other sort of international globalist uh, run entity, just like it sounds. I mean, world trade, world trademark, international trade, right? Exactly.
0: Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: And so his, his misadventures with Ferry, I mean, Ferry is once it becomes known that the case that he's in, looking into the case, then it brings a lot of media attention. Ferry who had been talking with them some uh, and and giving them some useful information as is depicted by, you know, Joe Pesci sort of losing his mind there at the end before he dies. Ferry becomes very panicked, but he also starts talking more about, you know, some of these things that are going on in the, with the, the, the the events that led up to um, the assassination and Ferry dies under very strange circumstances. Perhaps he was, um, perhaps he committed suicide or pre- there were suicide notes there, but he seems to have had an aneurysm. And then there's other issues with the mm-hmm. autopsy that suggest perhaps he had been force fed, uh, these, some sort of medication that would have killed him. Um, you know, and that's speculated about in Oliver Stone's JFK, that that's, that that's what happened. And other people think that it's possible that Ferry was killed. Um, I think the last guy to, that we know to have seen him was George Lardner, who was there until like almost three in the morning talking to him. And he's a, national security guy reporter for the Washington post. And he's the same guy, as I recall, who when, when, uh, Oliver Stone's movie came out, had been, he, he had somehow procured a script of the movie before it had even started filming. And then the Washington post starts, um, attacking Oliver Stone's movie, uh, for the first time, probably in film history, a movie is getting panned before it's even started filming. Um, and this was the last guy to see, to see Ferry alive, as I recall. So Ferry's death sets Garrison back. But the other lead is with uh, this Bertrand fellow. And he eventually, you know, as I said, concludes that it's Clay Shaw because a number of people tell him that. And um, eventually Dean Andrews admits as much to, um, to Harold Weisberg that, that that it was, in fact, uh, Clay Shaw. right. And Clay Shaw is a guy that would not have had much reason to hang out with Oswald again, like Oswald, how he, how he hangs out with George yeah. and Schilt, which is very strange. And here, this Clay Shaw guy mm-hmm. sees is, is with him. And later they are seeing Ferry and, uh, and Shaw or not later, but when he was, when they were in new Orleans, there's a scene in Clinton, Louisiana and Jackson, Louisiana, where a number of witnesses saw them together and they would have really stuck out because Ferry was a very weird looking dude. Um, probably even weirder than the movie if that's possible. Cause he wore this red wig and he would paint on eyebrows and uh, was just a mm. really strange looking guy. And they were, I will say,
0: I will say Pesci as Dave Ferry is one of the greatest cinematic feats in yeah. human history. I mean, I'm telling Great you
1: casting move, if
0: you have not seen JFK, first of all, it's a fantastic movie, but Pesci steals the show in it. I mean, he is incredible, and there are a lot of really, there's a lot of pretty sterling performances mm. in that. But I gotta say, Pesci is 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 uh, well. I'll just make the gesture, which is my thumb attached to my uh, my forefinger, my my middle finger.
1: It always seems so strange that Ferry would be so flamboyant in his costuming. We'll say when you're doing so many. You know, kind of like gopher runs for clandestine activities seems like you know what you know it's like wearing a big outfit that's like, "Hey, look at me." <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean?
3: That really is to what happened too, because there's yeah. so many witnesses. He's very identifiable when you read the reports. It's like, oh yeah, a guy with painted on eyebrows and a you know, red <laughs> wig, wearing like yes. these big suits and like v- you know, very very extravagant clothing. Like it's if if he was not that obvious, right? If he was just wearing a dark suit and like had you know, it would. It, there's so much of the case that Garrison <laughs> made would not have been able to. He wouldn't yes. have been able to make yeah, it. Actually,
0: yeah, yeah, you yeah, know? yeah.
3: I just want to, uh, Clay Shaw also. Um, maybe we'll get into this in just a minute, but um, because it was denied that Clay for a long time that Clay Shaw had any CIA connections of any kind. Yes. Um, and uh, you know, anytime there's a Gladio connection, I want to make that connection because he he sat on the board of a of a similar group to the World Trade Mart in in New Orleans called uh, Permindex, uh which was in Switzerland. It was uh, it was actually a sim- similar type of organization to the World Trade Mart. Um, and another group called the Centro Mundo Comercial. Uh, and these seem to me to have been Gladio fronts. Um, they were associated with the J.H. Schroeder Bank, which we uh, mentioned mm-hmm. was a sort of Nazi bank. I think Jim Eugenio talks about this in in one of his books. I can't remember uh, which one, but he he talks about this angle. Um, and it's very interesting to me to see, to see Shaw having been involved in that uh, and then to come over to the U.S., and and just complete denial and and they totally sheep dipped him and and you know made it seem like he had no association with the CIA at all maybe they acknowledged a little bit oh he maybe had had informed them a few times you know he's an international businessman so he's got useful information so right. we debriefed him a couple times we later. interviewed
0: him yeah when he gets back right
3: exactly but the uh, but the uh, extent of his of his involvement with the CIA which inv- involves possibly they procured a lawyer for him and other things like this um, you know, it's it's uh when you when you start to see those connections which have come out uh since the Garrison trial, which Garrison didn't really know about at the time, uh, although he did try to um he did try to go after him for perjury for, for some things he said. But it's just interesting to see uh the extent to which uh the CIA was intent on on not allowing those connections to become known to Garrison.
1: I mean, in the middle of this, they, they also really start trying to sabotage his investigation. I mean like all different ways, including like and this kind of You know they do this also throughout the rest of his career, uh, post trial, and then, (laughs) as we'll probably get into, even with JFK, uh, with Oliver Stone's movie JFK, like, I mean, the media hit job they do on this guy is pretty incredible. In the, you know, in the in the middle of the trial, they're throwing all these things at him and basically forcing him to go to trial before he's ready. Um, which seems to really, you know, because I think, I mean, I don't know how you guys feel, but I think that his case against Shaw was really difficult, um, you know, to like really, really prove. And, you know, it's always, it's already going to be a hostile court anyway. Um, and a lot of that seemed to be because of a lot of the moves that the state made to, to kind of force him to the table too early. And, you know, obviously the witness tampering and, and all the rest, um, but also like just the kind of the hit job that then he personally gets. Um, you know, there's people that accuse him of being mobbed up. There's people that accuse him of being, um, you know, they, they call, you know, all sorts of um, all sorts of media hit jobs, like throughout his career, um, just really, really throw in whatever they had at, 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 you know, at him to, to discredit the whole, the whole thing.
2: Yeah, they do a whole special on NBC, I believe, that's run by Walter Sheridan, um, who was an associate of Bobby Kennedy previously, and he's a really controversial figure because David Talbot says that he was going to be part of an investigation if Robert Kennedy became president, but Mm -hmm. then other people see him as a real villain. He was connected to the NSA and Angleton on some level, and so... I have no idea what to make of this, of Walter Sheridan, but he had a half-hour sort of hatchet job on Garrison. And because of the Fairness Doctrine, Garrison was allowed to go on and speak for a half an hour. And oh, my gosh. It,
1: remember the Fairness Doctrine?
2: <laughs> yeah, which was Sorry, problematic in a, in a way, but, and yet much better than not sure. having it, from what I can tell. Um, and he also, there's yeah, this, totally. this strange interview... Uh, with johnny carson i don't know if you've ever seen this but it's johnny carson interviewing mm-hmm. him and it's a different johnny carson than you've you've ever seen it's like a it's he's this game show uh, game show host talk show host he's supposed to be this raconteur who's like can have a good rapport with anyone yeah. but he is t- speaking to garrison like 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 he johnny carson is the prosecutor and he's got these like note cards <laughs> and he's been coached up i mean he's been told like look johnny you got this nice house this nice gig now it's time to call in some favors because there's no way that he did that on his his own accord and uh you Mm -hmm. know he it was quite you know pretty much slanderous in a way or a strange you know sort of ambush setting Mm -hmm. for somebody like Jim Garrison but his he he was able to reach people when he had his own half an hour show he was he won some people over and then his Playboy interview uh he had this interview in Playboy magazine where he comes off pretty well uh you know about that yeah, I actually got the Playboy on eBay, so I've got a copy of it somewhere uh, around here, and like it's you know this nice. like weird archive. Oh, no, it's- I
0: swear, I swear, <laughs> it's just for the, it's just for the Jim Garrison interview.
2: <laughs> I mean, these days there's a lot of uh, easier ways to get uh, you know uh, images of naked women yeah, than the 1960s yeah. Playboy with, but uh, you know they they had like the I think there's a classic Malcolm X interview in Playboy too, so. You know, you got you to gotta give credit where credit <laughs> is due. Um, but what you are saying about Clay Shaw and how it's sort of a, a drip over the years of things that come out, I think that the first more definitive uh, evidence that Shaw had been with the CIA was in Victor Marchetti's book, The, the Cult of Intelligence, because he had been uh, the assistant to Richard Helms, and, and he reported how in meetings they would talk about, hey, are we giving Shaw enough support? So they were actually paying for shaw's lawyers mm. they were really worried he was going to get convicted um and then later it emerges uh, i think this is a result of the jfk records act that he was a paid cia agent uh and was had been given clearance for qk enchant which as i understand it was a position that would allow him to vet or recruit people to become CIA agents themselves. So he was an OSS guy and then traveled around the world would get, would get debriefed by the CIA when he came back and he lied and said that he had never been part of the CIA and Garrison was going to go after him for perjury. And in a very, uh, after this, and in a very strange and kind of very shady move, a court sort of intervenes and doesn't allow Garrison to do this. And this is already when Garrison had been denied access to, uh, you know, people that he'd subpoenaed, you know, they just weren't going to honor his subpoenas for different people. He wanted to subpoena Alan Dulles, you know, right, for right, example. Right. And he said that it, that had never happened to him before, like to have a murder case. And then to have all these states just say, no, we're not going to let you subpoena these these people. So there was a the whole lot that was uh, going against him there. And other people, you know, Jim Eugenio is like probably the expert on the garrison case and he points to other people who were had infiltrated his office to work as volunteers and they were st- they were just stealing you know briefcases full of documents some of them we can only you know sort yeah. of that are very tantalizing one supposedly where a job application for lee harvey oswald lists jack ruby as a reference you know but that document has never surfaced but that that seemed to be part of garrison's files he was too trusting i think of too many people and when he started to look into mm. it, he didn't think, he didn't think, you know, fairy that this uh, Dean Andrews business, this must be the CIA. He just thought there was something very wrong with the story, and it's right, only right. as he goes along that he realizes what, is, what has happened. He's also one of the first guys to postulate that Kennedy was getting out of Vietnam, that that may have had some role in his in his uh, demise. Um, so. He's a guy that I think has been vindicated in, in many ways. I mean, he should, Shaw did perjure himself. We know that now, and if he even if he didn't have a big role in the plot, just his knowledge that Oswald was acting as a government agent in New Orleans would have been uh, very damning. And so, you know, I, I do think that yeah. Garrison has been in, in most senses vindicated, and yet that will not be acknowledged by the uh, you know the governing media. Uh, because it's just too—it's—it's it's just too damning.
3: They still go after him, and now the angle is that he was homophobic because Shaw and, and Ferry were gay, and they alleged that you know he was—he had that right. angle, you know that that was what motivated his uh, his dogged pursuit of these of these two guys. That it was just based on his homophobia of some kind. Uh, it's just a totally—I mean, it's still—and that I mean, it still continues to this day the idea that Garrison. Was misguided and and um, yeah, I think like you say, Aaron. I think he did have some pretty serious faults. I mean, he was clearly too trusting of these having these volunteers walking around. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how was he to know that you know that the that the CIA was was had a role in this, and that only became clear to him much 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 later. Uh, so yeah, I, I, especially if people um, people should check out that Destiny Betrayed book that has a lot mm-hmm. of stuff about the Garrison investigation. Yeah. In it. Um, by Jim De Eugenio. I think that's got. Uh, you know, I think he makes Jim De Eugenio makes a great case for, uh for Garrison's vindication, in my opinion.
1: I think too, Garrison. I mean, I don't know. This is my sense of him is that, like, uh, I I think the too trusting thing comes from the fact that, like, I mean, he's like a he's a DA. He's like a career patriot. He was like in was he was in the military, I believe. And I mean, so he's not like. I think there was this impression with people who are not familiar with the case, or maybe you know, prior to seeing the movie or they've just heard of things in passing that like, you know, oh, if someone's looking into JFK or they're trying to bring a case out in court, like they must be a crank, they must be a, th- you know, conspiracy theorist. They must have already had all these ideas that they had already, you know, they were looking for evidence to prove a claim that they already had. Whereas like, if you read through the garrison documents, if you read through, I mean, you know, the, the history of the case, it's really clear that, I mean, he really does, you know, investigate. And then it goes to where it goes and it starts to drive him a little crazy, I think. Um, But he was never, I I think that's the thing is he was like, well, I'm just looking at how, you know, this is the most important thing ever. The president was killed. We have to figure out who did this. And I don't think he ever expected any of the shit that was being thrown at him or, you know, and when he finally figured it out, uh, I, you know, I wonder how much he even like, you know, accepted all of it, to be honest someone who like believes in the government that much or that there is like at bottom, a good government somewhere that can be a little crazy making, you know?
2: Yeah. He had flown, uh, these little, this little grasshopper plane is what it was called. That was like uh pretty dangerous and harrowing cause he had to fly pretty low and it was slow. And, uh, so he'd flown in a number of missions and distinguished himself in world war two. And he had actually been there when some of the concentration camps were liberated. So he, he had uh, mm. some PTSD from world war two. And at, at one point I think he uh, either, either he leaves law school for a while or he takes a break in whatever job he was doing to sort of recover from like, you know, what they would have called shell shock back then. And it, you know, he's, in the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination you still don't have these exposes on the CIA so the things that he's the conclusions right, yeah. he's coming to are completely alien to the American public by by the mid 60s you know Vietnam is in full swing and there's a sign that whoa something has gone really wrong because as we said earlier it's 1964 when trust for the government, Uh, among the public starts to really take a nosedive and that's before Vietnam. So it's like the Kennedy assassination is the beginning of it. I believe in the, the Warren report, but then Vietnam also, but the American public had basically been themselves victim of some sort of like meta covert operation in a way, because they have a totally, uh, you know erroneous perception of what the government is actually doing what Eisenhower was actually doing i mean that the 50s are thought of as this golden age but the dulles brothers are running foreign policy and they are you know they their their mischief their criminal mischief around the world like has repercussions for decades really i mean up to the present day iran the situation mm-hmm. in iran uh, guatemala you know you yeah, have hundreds absolutely. of thousands being killed in the 80s as a result of things that happened in 1954 um, you know, all of these Cuban operations with the mob and uh, these mob ties from World War II era that are never really, uh, you know, they never cut ties with them. I mean, the, the public had no idea. And so Garrison was really going into uncharted territory with this. And, uh, you know, he gets help from some people, but it's, it, that can't compare to the resources of the state. You actually have people like uh, Harold Weisberg was there helping at some point. Uh, Vincent Salandria... I think mark lane was involved in the investigation the comedian um what was that comedian's name he, he was married to this chinese playboy chinese american playboy model um mort saul uh, the, the joker name. wait
1: mort saul really
2: what was mort saul doing there he worked on the kennedy assassination for some reason this is one of the more interesting things wait, about what? this but i <laughs> I, brace i think you'll appreciate this because you're such a wise ass i think that this will there's a lot of comedians who are yeah. like the, some of the best critics of the kennedy assassination for some reason if you are a weisenheimer mm. by nature this stuff is easier to believe uh you know so like dick gregory for example he was a great comedian and he was you know he became really preoccupied with those assassinations mort saul um, bill hicks you know i mean if you've heard bill hicks routine sure. on the kennedy assassination Famously. like Uh, For some reason, I think comedians can see things clear or or whatever, because, uh, you know, and he was actually working there as an investigator. So he was one of the most, Saul was one of the most sought after, well-paid comics of his day. And he kind of threw it away because of his Kennedy assassination stuff. Um, So, you know... But that's, this didn't help. The CIA had lots of resources. Garrison had these independent people, but also a bunch of infiltrators. And, uh, you know, they lied about so much of the things uh, having to do with him. After the Oliver Stone movie came out, they had that terrible um, uh, Posner book, right? And he says that Ferry and Oswald never even knew each other, and which is absurd. And there was already plenty of documentation that they did. Mm. But then there's this photograph that emerges around that time of
3: Mm-hmm. Ferry and
2: Oswald together at that camp in uh, New Orleans, which basically proves that they knew each other. Yeah, and you have the fact that on the day of the assassination, Ferry was kind of panicked and running around trying to get his library card, which he believed Oswald had, and he was also worried. Contacted people from the civilian air patrol or whatever, asking, "Hey, you don't have any photographs of me and Oswald together, do you?" Or, or things to that effect. So, this is consciousness of guilt, you know, and on some level, um, and. It, but people die, you know, like uh, during the course of his investigation, you have or or between the trial and the assassination, you have Oswald gets killed. Of course, Bannister gets killed on, in 64, supposedly a heart attack, but people think he may have been shot. Um, Ruby dies in 67 and David Ferry on the same day uh, dies along with Aladio Davaye, Valle, who was a Cuban exile And his friends later claimed that he was murdered, and he was murdered and mutilated, I mean, chopped up and and killed in a really horrific way, um, Uh, you know, on the same day as as David (laughs) Suicide. machete right so, all suicides
1: um, <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah act himself to that's that. the Elliot yeah. Smith version
0: I'm sorry yeah. I, here's the thing though some of these guys like some of these Cuban guys down in Miami are shooting themselves in the chest which no human being does to kill themselves yeah. it's like well I mean you might as well say the guy got chopped up did it himself you know same fucking thing yeah
1: Aaron, you mentioned that people at this time didn't really know about the CIA crimes. And I think that's like a really important context that sometimes people looking back at this stuff miss. I mean, this is like, you know, obviously this is pre-Watergate, but which is kind of what opens up the gate to then, you know, the church committee um, and the kind of like, you know, obviously, you know, I don't know how much we want to get into that. um, It's its own little like limited hangout. (laughs) Well, As then, it is. I mean,
0: even like those like ramparts and like even some of the New York Times exposés. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, that was really like, it's like late 60s, early 70s when a lot of this stuff really gets, I mean, late 60s more, when a lot of this stuff really starts coming out. And like, I mean, people didn't know about like, I mean, for instance, the AFL-CIO involvement with the CIA, I think until the 70s. Um, you know, it's like this stuff that seems now to us that like, of course, you know, like the the Congress of Cultural Freedom was like a CIA front. Of course, like all of these different things were used by the CIA. Back then, I mean, people didn't, I mean, this was the realm of like extreme paranoiacs and like people who just were not taken seriously. And, you know, God God knows how it's, it's hard to get taken seriously talking about some of this stuff now. But back then, it wasn't, I mean, at least now we have like an abundance of evidence and, you know- books and books and volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes of evidence on our side. But like back then that, that, that same sort of thing didn't exist yet. I mean, fuck people thought the Gulf of Tonkin was real still.
2: One of the early exposés is around the time of the Kennedy assassination. I think it's like, it might be 63 or 64. It's by David Wise. And I, I, I think it's called the secret government and it gets into some of this stuff. And, um, you know, you had have like, I mentioned that article that came out like a couple months before Kennedy's killed where, in the New York Times, in the Washington, uh, another Washington newspaper, it said that the CIA is out of control. There might be a seven right, days right. in May. So there are these things that do start to come out. But, um, you know, Garrison didn't know about that that much, that, that stuff. And so these this business with Clay Shaw, he gets acquitted. But, you know, they find out a, a whole lot of things after the fact that he was involved with, including, well, well, one mystery that gets solved is the Clem Bertrand angle, like why he chose that name. Uh, the reason he picked it seems to be because of Pope Clement V, whose surname was Bertrand uh, mm. de Gout, And um, the Pope had, this This Pope had sheltered homosexuals in the 14th century. And uh, so his legacy lived on in the sort of closeted homosexual community. Uh, so much so mm. that there developed a Clement Bertrand society, which helped homosexuals with legal problems. And so the Shaw Bertrand thing where he's, you know, sending these gay Latino Cuban guys to Dean Andrews with Oswald, you know, as the custodian or helper uh, suggests that, you know, I mean, that makes, you know, seems to make perfect sense. Uh, and, of course, the fact that a number of people did identify him as, uh, as using that, that alias and being the same guy. And uh, the New York Times reported on March 3rd, 1967, quote, a Justice Department official said tonight that his agency was convinced that Mr. Bertrand and Mr. Shaw were the same man. So, there you have it from an official source, even.
0: My thought with him and the Cubans is that he just thought they were gay because they were wearing mesh shirts. <laughs> and he was like, That's actually where that came from. That's where that came from. Yeah, yeah, it didn't yeah. Exist before. Exactly.
1: Um, yeah, mesh shirts are fascist.
0: Listen, I'm not going to go that far. I mean, Danzig was my first concert. Um, And I can't, but there's some, there's some going on with that mess shirt. Yeah.
2: (laughs) So one of the things that, that, that Garrison does do really well is, and he exposes for the first time, a couple of other things, other contributions. The Zapruder film. He's able to subpoena it. And as a result of that, a copy of a copy of that is what eventually gets shown on live television, you know, like about eight years later. Additionally, he had the, people who did the autopsy at Bethesda testify and this is really accurately depicted in JFK and the you know the uh, the what happens at that autopsy is pretty wild uh, that they weren't allowed to yeah. probe mm-hmm. wounds you know the back wounds they were specifically told not to probe it that uh, you know that there was somebody else in charge a general that was telling them not to do what you're supposed to do in an autopsy which is to to probe gunshot wounds um so so these are our things that he establishes and you can't really take that away from him, even if he loses. He also had, um, you know, this out of this trial, I believe it's where the Cybert and O'Neill report come from with the FBI. And these are like two honest guys who observed the autopsy and they all described this big wound to the back of Kennedy's head, you know, and these are pretty reliable sources. Mm-hmm. So uh, there are a number of, of things that come out of this, uh, even if he is uh, not victorious In the end, um, I think he exposed a lot of the important aspects of the
0: case. So if you're like me, you and everybody you know kind of thinks of the CIA like every other government agency. Fucking baller and ready to protect you at a moment's notice. Hidden heroes, zero, dark, 30 all the time. Jim Garrison, of course, slightly dissented from this. Uh, but let's get into, before we talk about the some of the other uh, official congressional investigations of this assassination and possibly some more assassinations, um, how did other government officials feel about this kind of stuff, right? Because, I mean, the CIA hadn't been around for very long and uh, in its short tenure had, a, well, a close relationship with a lot of presidents. In fact, uh, sometimes an overriding relationship with some presidents Uh, It often found itself um, making enemies out of former allies.
2: Yeah. So we know that the public did not really buy the two lone nuts or the dual nuts thesis, but you know, it it often gets asked like, well, if it was really a conspiracy, why didn't Robert Kennedy do something about it? Wouldn't he be angry about his brother? Okay. But we find out in the nineties that, he and Jackie Kennedy had sent a messenger, William Walton, to Russia. I think we talked about this earlier, but with a message to the Russians saying, uh, we know you didn't kill Jack. It was a domestic right-wing conspiracy, but we can't do anything about it. We can't uh, look to continue the world peace quest until RFK is president, right? So we know Robert Kennedy and Jackie Kennedy did not believe it. Also, LBJ came to suspect that the CIA was involved in this. He said about. Uh, the Cuba business and the you know their policies in, in the Caribbean that we were running a damn murder incorporated down there and he made other kind of cryptic statements but it's known that he came to suspect the CIA um, now Richard Nixon himself, When he becomes president, he is preoccupied with these Bay of Pigs files, you know, as is well known by probably a lot of listeners that uh, he sends Haldeman down there to try to get those and say that the Watergate business could lead to the Bay of Pigs being opened up and that really enrages Dick Helms. But even before that, in October 71, Nixon is trying to get those Bay of Pigs files from Helms, you know, prior to 1972, which is when all the Watergate stuff happens. And uh, so he's talking to Helms and he, he said, um, you know, the who shot John angle is Eisenhower to blame? Is Kennedy to blame? Is Johnson to blame? Is Nixon to blame? Etc. Etc. It may become not by me a very vigorous issue, but if it does, I need to know what is necessary to protect frankly, the intelligence gathering and the dirty tricks department, and I will protect it. I've done more than my share of lying to protect <laughs> you. And I believe it's totally right to do it. So he's actually trying to get whatever information they have about the Kennedy assassination. And he's saying like, I'll lie to protect you. I mean, he's basically, you know, I think pretty clearly saying whatever role you guys had in this, I'll protect you. Just let me know, which of course would have given him great leverage over the CIA. And this quest for him to try to get power over the CIA is really a huge part of Watergate. So he, as I said earlier, he sent, um his assistant Haldeman to try to get those uh to get him to you know help with the press and cover up this this Watergate break-in he would like to be able to say it was a CIA thing so stop investigating this because of course if you told the Washington Post that they would listen I mean they may they're not exactly a CIA cutout but they aren't exactly not and uh so he's trying to get the uh, get Richard Helms to help him on this. And he does a little bit, but then, you know, he's still, s- Nixon still suspects the CIA is potentially behind some of this stuff. Now, eventually he fires Richard Helms, which was what James McCord had said, you know, would cause everything to go down. He says like, if the queen falls, then every other piece shall fall as well or something like that. Right. James McCord is the burglar who seems to have gotten himself arrested on purpose, uh, along with the other Watergate burglars. So, uh, when Nixon fires Richard Helms, he appoints William Colby, or no, James Schlesinger, to be the director of the CIA, and he tells him, "I want you to go and get all the dirt on the CIA that you can, because I got to we got to we got to stop these guys. I think that they're sort of behind this." And so Schlesinger starts this process, and he has William Colby uh, in charge of gathering this file, and it's what becomes known as the Family Jewels file. It was basically any instance in which the CIA had exceeded its legal charter. <laughs> which of course they do quite a bit. And during Watergate some of these stories leak out. So all these stories that leak out during Watergate are, are not from like people who are good government people. A lot of them are very shady there. Uh people like I mean Deep Throat himself is Mark Felt, who was total black bag man, Cointel Pro guy, really sinister dude, not a guy who cares about the law. And so additionally some of the family jewels stories start to leak out about the crimes of the CIA. And this, you know, it, so Nixon is trying to expose the security state, and the security state is trying to expose Nixon, and who's going to have more sway with the press? Nixon felt really paranoid, like he had a lot of enemies in the press, and that he had enemies in the CIA, and enemies in the Pentagon. Which the he Pentagon, did. Yeah, which he did. They were spying on him. There was a in there, and Nixon covered that He thought it would be bad for the nation. So you know, in a way, and this is what Peter Dale Scott argues, that it's similar forces that got rid of Kennedy that probably got rid of, rid of Nixon, but it was messy, in know, with with Kennedy, JFK, it was messy in terms of having his head exploded, which is messy, but in the Nixon case, it's messy because it exposes a whole lot of shenanigans, and, uh, you know, this is a, a deeper subject to get into, but one of the things that Deep Throat says is like, oh my, to, uh, to Woodward, who himself is a spooky character, uh, former Office of Naval Intelligence, right. he says yeah. that, uh, 100%. you know, <laughs> he says that this is getting into really some really serious business. We might see, you know, everybody might be killed sometime soon. And then and then he's saying, like, why, over Watergate or what? He's like, no, it's it's deeper than that. It's the whole covert apparatus of the United States government. It's, it's sprawling, and it's uh, astounding in its scope, and if 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 it's potentially exposed, this could lead to, like, you know, a a slate of killings like we've never seen before, something to that effect, right? So, eventually, this gets resolved with Nixon resigning the presidency after Ford is installed as vice president. Probably Alexander Haig makes a deal where Ford will pardon Nixon and uh, agree to pardon him if Nixon Mm -hmm. resigns. And Nixon is pardoned for everything, everything he could have done as president if it turned out that he had been, you know... Uh, Like trafficking underage kids and burying them in the Rose Garden, he would have been pardoned for that. Like it was the most blanket pardon ever issued that I know of. And of course, Ford himself famously moved the location of the magic bullet and was, you know, an establishment guy through and through. But the fallout of Watergate is the Watergate Congress. And this is for the first time Congress really trying to stand up to the CIA. And Ford tries to get out in front of this with this. Really ridiculous Rockefeller Commission, which is like Ronald Reagan and Barry Goldwater and other establishment types pretending to investigate mean, yes. in intelligence. It's, it's, it's,
0: it's insane. <laughs> it's like a fucking clan
2: rally. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> they still. I mean, the Rockefeller. I, th- I think that was still where we found out about the CIA heart attack
0: gun. So they did uncover some things. That's more just like showing off, like, "Hey guys, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, got a new fucking <laughs> Delta Point scope or whatever." It's, it's, yeah.
2: Well, and during one of those meetings, it, it sort of gets revealed accidentally uh, because I guess it's a, maybe it's a press conference and, and Shore is there. Uh, that guy, Daniel Shore, and, and Ford says something to the effect of, you know, this will get into like sensitive matters, and they're saying like, what? And then he goes, like, assassinations. You know, and this is like Ford being kind of stupid, and, and so that gets, what eventually comes out is that he's probably referring to foreign assassinations, and then since this is not satisfactory for you know that you had this sort of it was a, in a way it was a blue ribbon commission again to like investigate the intelligence community like yeah. it was handpicked by the state to investigate the state congress is you know presumably the more democratic with a lowercase d institution so they have uh one senator frank church and then charles i believe it's charles pike in the house and they investigate and i think that it was the church committee where they, I believe that was where they do reveal the, the gun that was potentially a heart attack gun. You sort of have to piece that part together, but there's that famous picture of Frank Church sitting next to John Tower and he's holding that gun. Mm-hmm. It's an electric, silent gun, can fire a poison projectile uh, and uh, silently and you'd have a heart attack and then die. And uh, they also had all this blowfish toxin, which may have been what they made to, to, to kill people that way. Um, you have the MK Ultra stories that start to come out and then Helms supposedly destroyed all of those things, but you really wonder about that. Um, you have Alfred McCoy's book in 19, came out in the earlier 70s uh, about the KMT CIA drug trafficking in Southeast Asia. Even that story is strange, like the way that McCoy is sort of led down this garden path by people in the agency, and people who were in the know that vet all of his work. Uh, to say, like, oh, yeah, this is correct, or no, you got this detail wrong. Like, people, there seemed to be some sort of establishment civil war, even on the drug angle, under Nixon. Because Nixon had the war on drugs, you know, that was his thing. Even mm. though he had was really connected to the China lobby, or the Far Eastern lobby, which was completely, uh, you know, in, in gra- or intertwined with the drug trafficking in East Asia. So, these exposés come out, and one of the things the Church Committee does is they... Look into the uh, Kennedy assassination, but very narrowly. It's whether the CIA and FBI did a good job investigating, and they find no, they did not. <laughs> they were very deficient. And uh, I think it's Gary Hart and Senator Richard Schweiker who were on that particular part of the uh, of the of the Church Committee, and um, you know they uncover a lot of things. And this also at the same time you have civil rights leaders who are wanting to open the MLK case and also contemporaneous to this. You have the first national television showing of the Zapruder film by Geraldo Rivera naturally. And this shocks people Uh. because he seems to be pretty clearly shot from the front. And so people are saying, why have we not been told this? Why are we only seeing this now? And this creates, this combined with the, the, the pressure of the King, the King family and the civil rights movement, uh, they sort of dovetail the two Kennedy assassinations with the Martin Luther King assassination to create a house select committee on assassinations. And that is the second and really last official investigation of the Kennedy assassination.
3: I wanted to touch on uh Schweiker briefly because, um, Liz, you mentioned Garrison is not being—you know—we're, you know, we, we're, we're, you know we're, we're communists and conspiracy nuts, so of course we think that the, uh, that Oswald was an intelligence asset mm. and that the Warren Commission was a cover-up. But Schweiker said that, right? He's this Republican senator from Pennsylvania. Yes, you know he's investigating it, and he says that that uh, the Warren Commission relied on the CIA and FBI personnel, and that they directed a cover-up. And then he later says about Oswald. That Oswald had intelligence fingerprints all over him. Yeah, right? yeah. So this is not just this is this is a, this is a uh, you know a U.S. senator, Republican senator, who's who's uh, been investigating this stuff, who comes to that conclusion based on the facts that he saw. And even I mean, we you know uh, talk about the Church Committee's role as a limited hangout and and the later House Select Committee, but the facts that they uncovered still were very very useful, uh, much more useful than the Warren Commission in terms of telling us what actually did happen. Uh, This is not just, you know, I mean, these are, these are very serious people. And for some reason, I mean, that I I, just baffles me that that whole, this whole period of of time seems to have been extricated from our historical memory. We just don't remember that the, that the, these congressional committees even happened. It's just not a part of. Uh, what we what we think about it all. It's just a, it's a very bizarre. I certainly didn't learn about any of this in school, and it seems highly relevant. So I don't, you know, it's just bizarre.
0: Yeah, the Warren Commission still held up as basically the investigation, but there, there, right. I mean, there were two with with somewhat narrower scope, but like definitely uh, actually uncovering a lot more information than the original commission did. Um, and you know, your point about Schweiker is absolutely correct. Like he was not a conspiracy. Now you know, and, and at first, I think he wasn't even like sold on that there was a conspiracy, but uh, eventually just, I mean, you have to face the facts of the evidence.
2: Yeah. He went on face the nation in 76. And he said, I think the Warren report to those who studied it closely has collapsed like a house of cards. Yeah, The fatal mistake the Warren commission made was not to use its own investigators, but instead to rely on the CIA and FBI personnel, which played directly into the hands of senior intelligence Mm -hmm. officials who directed the cover up. And this is a guy who was strongly considered to, for uh, Reagan to be a running mate of Ronald Reagan. So not...
1: Um, well, he took himself <laughs> out of the run in there.
3: <laughs> it's also a funny statement because, uh, you know, one of the guys running the Warren Commission was the former CIA director.
1: Right. So I don't know
3: actually how much good it would have done for the Warren Commission to have its own investigators. But nonetheless, he explicitly says in that statement that they covered it up, that they covered up in particular the fact that Oswald was was pretty clearly an intelligence asset, which seems highly relevant to his role in the assassination.
1: Ben, you mentioned, or I mentioned, and then you echoed the idea that these committees were kind of like limited hangouts in their own ways. Um, But I mean, the Warren commission is kind of a separate thing. When we say like blue ribbon, it's almost like it's more of a show trial than anything um, start to finish. But can you just, for our like new listeners here, can you explain a little bit what we mean when we say limited hangout and how these kind of qualify?
3: Yeah, well, I think there's a good, so for instance, the House Select Committee on Assassinations looked at um, Ruby's connections to organized crime. So all the stuff that we just talked about about Ruby's uh, in the last episode about Ruby's connections to organized crime, that's now been established, it's, it's documented. So for instance, Peter L. Scott um, was investigating that stuff before the House Select Committee on Assassinations took place. And he gave them a lot of information about, about all this research that he had done. Uh, I think he did. A, he wrote a book called "Crime and Cover Up," which I think some of the uh, people involved in the House Select like Committee had actually bought copies of that book and read it and cited mm. it in their report. He gave them a ton of information, and then in his book "Deep Politics and the Death of JFK," talks about how they basically just whitewashed it or didn't or didn't include it or didn't talk about the full implications of it. Um, and so that so the, the the concept of the limited hangout, which actually is something a, a term that came from Nixon from the Nixon mm-hmm. tapes. Uh, where he talks about this concept of a limited hangout, I, he did not coin that term; it, it long existed, but it's sort of where it first came into prominence. Um, the, the concept of a limited hangout is to reveal some elements of some covert operation uh, to sort of uh, it serves a variety of purposes. One is to try to satisfy the public: mm-hmm. oh, here is the full truth. Oh, yes, it is true that there was this intelligence cover-up. Um, oh, yes, it was true that there was a conspiracy of some kind, which is what the House Select Committee found. Uh, but to not actually reveal the full extent of the facts, to not actually reveal everything which has happened. There's, a, as, as Nixon calls it, the modified limited hangout where perhaps you include some lies as a part of your limited hangout uh, to further take away from the truth. Um so particularly as it pertains to there are lots so for intelligence purposes, there are lots of limited hangouts that you would do sure. that would not be. This have podcast,
1: etc. Obviously. <laughs> Listen,
3: yeah,
0: right. no, what I'm doing is gaslighting. That's very different. <laughs> <laughs> There's no political intention behind gaslighting it. Gaslighting is the
1: original limited hangout. Gaslighting's
0: fake. That gaslighting itself is a gaslight.
3: But it's it serves a lot of purposes. Just I mean, intelligence people lie to each other all the time. The CIA withholds information from the FBI, just tells them a little bit about what's going on, and and that's never obviously that doesn't interface with the public at all. But as far as the public is concerned, it, it definitely serves those PR purposes of, you know, you could satisfy people to some extent by giving them a little piece of the truth and hoping that people are are satisfied with that and don't ask any further questions. But the benefit of these kinds of limited hangouts is that they do contain some of the facts in and of themselves, and and you can start to build on those things. I mean, uh, certainly a lot of the great research that's been done about the JFK assassination since the House Select Committee uh, has used information from that. Sure. Um, So it it um, it's uh, it's you know part of the part of this is that they only have to lie for for long enough, right? Once all the people involved are all dead, once all of the loose ends have been tied up, you know, it doesn't really matter anymore what the public knows which is almost where we are with the JFK assassination yeah, to some absolutely. extent. Yeah, absolutely. It's weird. Uh,
0: from from what yeah. I understand, and I've heard this like third hand, so take it with as many grains of salt as you want to, but apparently working in Washington in proximity to or in the CIA, it's basically like kind of something they like joke about. They're like, yeah, we did it. You know what I mean? Like, of course we did and yeah, it's like a, yeah. a badge of honor. I want to be clear. I have not heard that firsthand or even secondhand. That's like thirdhand. No.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. But, you're not that high up yet. No.
0: <laughs> I, you know, it's plus I'd blab, but uh, but but <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's one of those things. That's and, and at this point too, you know, I I mean, maybe I'm getting a little ahead here. It's like, who cares if people know? You know, I mean, what would happen if if people knew? I mean, people well, that's do That's the like know. bullies
1: brag, right? I mean, that's like what when you're so power, it, it's almost like, what are you gonna do? Yeah, we did it. What? What are you gonna do? It's like taunting almost. Yeah, they
0: call that's- it the Simpson strategy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's true, and I think it's effective because it's very demobilizing, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is this this period being kind of memory hold, this sort of like these kind of pre Reagan post-60s, I mean, I don't mean that by just the 70s, but I mean this <laughs> specific, like, you know, time where these congressional hearings are happening about and all of these sort of revelations about the- I mean, it's not just the congressional hearings that are happening i mean we mentioned there's a pruder film being shown on tv but it's like you know there's a huge movement all these fucking hollywood movies are coming out that are talking about you know different aspects of the cia and different kind of like spy and paranoid thrillers and you know everyone talks about this kind of like paranoid mood um you know, it's a really, it, it, a lot of this has been memory hold and it being memory hold and it being kind of connected and controlled as a limited hangout, I think, are not totally disconnected. Um, you know, the MK Ultra stuff is a really obvious example. We mentioned that. It's like the little, very little we know about MK Ultra is literally from one piece of paper that was, quote, unquote, left behind while, quote, unquote, everything else was burned. You know what I mean? Like that feels very like a classic kind of, you know, way of controlling that kind of information while letting it kind of like drip out a little bit. Um, but it's true that, of course, the, a lot of the stuff we know, particularly about the CIA's activities, you know, in in assassinations uh, internationally, I mean, overseas, kind of, you know, comes out of these these commissions.
3: And I do think um, I do because, um, as I said, like Peter Del Scott was on to a lot of the stuff that the House Select Committee yeah. figured, you know, f- figured out. Uh, you know, really covered up in some in some ways beforehand. But it's one thing for a person to write a book about it, and it's another thing for the official government body yeah, to yeah, say something about it. You know, as much as obviously, you know, it's not like I we, I exactly put much stock in what Congress has to say about anything. But certainly, for the purposes of the public, that's what they're they're not going to go and find this you know crime and cover up book, right? They're not going to read that. But if the if this congressional committee says this was a conspiracy, that's what the House Select Committee said. There was a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that has a that has a much greater impact, uh, despite the fact that, you know, most the, the Warren Commission story is still the story, despite the fact that there's been this subsequent admission by a government commission that that uh, that there was a conspiracy. But uh, I suppose that as you said, Liz, that's part of the that's part of the cover up itself, part of the limited hangout itself. And I give people a little blast to kind of quell them. Make them not, Not. don't worry about this. We, we've uncovered all the facts and then all that inconvenient stuff that came out. Let's just not talk about it anymore.
2: One weird angle about the House Select Committee and the sort of manipulation of discourse, which is, uh, you know, I don't know if this is a very novel argument that I'm making here. And I, I, I can't prove it. But around the same time that this final report is coming out, the big sort of pop culture sensation in America is the TV show Dallas. And who shot Jr.? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's much more energy devoted to that issue at the time than to the House Select mm-hmm. Committee, which was really kind of downplayed and not covered in the press that much, a- except to actually damage the f- original lead counsel, uh, Richard Sprague. He wanted to conduct a serious and he wanted to treat it like a murder investigation. He wanted to not assume that anything in the Warren report was accurate. He wanted to get to the bottom of it. And he found that he, when he um, got into matters involved, you know, involving the intelligence community, that time and again, that was where he ran in, into trouble, and he's eventually forced forced out, and they had to find somebody else to do it, uh, to take over for him. And they were uh, they eventually settled on this guy named Robert Blakey, but before that, they actually you know. I guess another Earl Warren redo or something, right? They went to a former Supreme court justice, Arthur Goldberg, and uh, he considered accepting the job, but uh, he knew that the CIA had at the very least covered up some facts of the assassination and at worst been involved. So he calls Stansfield Turner, who is Carter's CIA director, who's actually kind of a reformist guy. He's (laughs) the guy who fires Shackley and Clines, you know, and he actually does seem to try to get rid of the most criminal, Uh, and, you know, uh, moral reprobate operators in the CIA, which is no small task. And um, he calls, so so Goldberg, Supreme Court, retired justice, calls Stansfield-Turner and says, you know, should I take this job? Will I have the CIA cooperation? And uh, he doesn't say, he doesn't get any response from Turner. He's like, silence. So Goldberg uh, says, well, did you hear the question? And then Turner says, well, I thought my silence you know, was my answer. And so at that point, Goldberg said, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to try to mess with the CIA. You know, if if Carter was serious about hiring a reformer and they wanted to get to the bottom of it, that would be one thing. But, um, you know, I mean, you have a democratic president and his, the CIA director, he handpicked to investigate the murder of, you know, the most celebrated democratic politician, the last, you know, at least since FDR. And even he, was refusing to help this investigation so they settle with they settle on robert blakey who's a notre dame law professor and he specialized in organized crime but really a narrow version of organized crime like the cosa nostra you know this mafia omerta code of silence like really ancient order you know like this kind of cliche version of of organized crime that sees it as a foreign element to the are, are otherwise healthy mm. democracy right and so i think that that's done on purpose in a way that they know that that you know that if they this is well you talk about phase one and phase two the mafia is be like phase three right the phase three sort of cover up mm. of it's like some version of anti Castro Cubans and right. mafia but we never really given any explanations about that and um he questions sprague was pretty aggressive and he questioned uh santo trafficante on all these issues about the kennedy assassination and the castro plots and uh you know a number of things related to this and he basically pled the fifth you know which is what you say to avoid incriminating yourself and he wouldn't answer any of those any of those questions so uh they were putting blakey in there was you know probably a sign that they were going to cover it up ironically decades later blakey comes to the same conclusion as like you know these other people that the state had to have been involved uh but that's decades later that's like in the in the it's really not until that he really comes out on that side like a few years ago when he signed that statement for the truth and reconciliation committee uh which was pretty remarkable but even in the 90s by the 90s he said you know i've been told that the cia is full of you know liars and you can't trust anything from them and well, now I'm pretty much in that camp too. So he, even he came to realize what it, what had happened, what had happened there. But um, you know, the, it was like Gaten and Fonzie was one of the people who wrote a book about the House Select Committee, and uh, you know, he ran into all sorts of trouble. Everybody kept dying, or he'd be sent on these stupid errands that didn't make any sense. Getting you know bad information from like Claire Booth Luce and other people. Uh, so it's like this sort of comic misadventure. I think you guys are so kind of you funny. Read. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I've I've read the book and there's he I I it's written in a sort of jaunty kind of way and he does get into some pretty funny misadventures with Frank Sturgis and all these just like total freaks. I mean, because that's the thing about the Kennedy assassination. There's a lot of real weirdos who are involved in it, yeah. especially at the lower levels. And uh and and Fonzi has the uh either great fortune or great misfortune of interacting fairly closely with a lot of them. But his, his book is, uh is the last investigation. I think it's called. It's pretty good.
1: Yeah. It's like I was saying, it's like before all this stuff was bureaucratized and like back then it's like, you got all these great characters. Like, like we talked, you know, like fairy, the most obvious <laughs> fucking guy in the world King. in his crazy eyebrows and wig and outfits. And now it's like, they're all just cold technocrats that look the same. You know what I mean? awful
3: yeah it's it's all it's all DevGru 6 and you know all those guys instead of uh instead of flamboyant uh traveling playboys
1: yeah the um
3: the the other just to um because the the cia even even after the uh because we talked about blakey sort of doubting the cia and this idea of of the hsca still being a limited hangout Um, is it the main, so, so because, uh, because Stansfield Turner, you know, says, look, you, (laughs) I cannot guarantee that you're going to get cooperation. Right. And, uh, and it turns out that the guy that was the primary liaison between the house select committee and assassinations, I can't remember the person's name off the top of my head, but he had been in JM wave and had been like intricately involved in operation mongoose, you know, CIA and mafia plots against Castro so obviously, like he was handpicked to serve that role because he would know what can I what can I tell the House Select Committee and what do I need to make sure does not get mm-hmm. told to the House Select Committee so mm-hmm. we can keep the essential elements of this hidden? So that's a part of like this limited hangout, right? is a CIA person who is this key conduit for information from the agency to this committee that's going to make it public, and he personally knows or has been told also, I'm sure been briefed extensively about what to let through and what not to let through. And that's what happens, right? Key key information about, I mean, even at this point, the extent of the Castro assassination plots was not known even after the church committee. And it would have been super relevant, obviously for the house select committee to know about that stuff. And they were kept in the dark about a lot of it uh, by specifically by the CIA intentionally lying to them, deceiving them, withholding information from them, even at this late stage, you know, Something like what thirteen or so years after the after the assassination.
2: Yeah, the guy's name was George Joannides, and uh, I think Fonzi mentions him in the thing, and he says, "Man, this guy—he's—he's he's not helping me at all. <laughs> he's really being the opposite of helpful." And uh, Blakey, this—that was actually the revelation that he had been uh, responsible for supervising and bankrolling the anti-Castro Cubans, specifically the DRE, which was you know connected to the uh, Oswald's adventures in New Orleans, but also uh, leaked mm-hmm. or, or that, those details to the press about Oswald's connections to Cuba, like on the day of the assassination. Um, so, Joe Edes is somebody who should have been a suspect. He should have been deposed. Uh, and instead, you know, kind of like Alan Dulles on the Warren commission, he, he's, he's one of the, he's, he's involved in the plot. <laughs> he's guilty, but he's like, there investigating it or involved in the investigation. So uh you know, he was deputy director for psychological warfare at J and Wave. Um, sort of like uh C. Mm-hmm. C Jackson was a psychological warfare person for the OSS when uh and he's the person who bought the Zapruder film. So they are waging psychological warfare on us, including with like the soap opera Dallas, I think on some level. At least that's my pet my pet <laughs> yeah,
1: hypothesis. <absolutely. laughs> totally. I mean if they'll do that,
0: it'll with the soaps. Me, yeah.
1: Yeah, totally. <laughs> Liz, what and so day. this is no
0: no so Liz, so this is me not watching Richard Jewell mm. forever and, and or any other film Does or television resist- show. <laughs> yeah. That is me resisting the globalists. Um, <laughs> because who knows what kind of messes they're trying to tell me in there. I mean, speaking of film and television, well, film actually, uh the next sort of big Break, I guess, in the JFK investigation, specifically, like I think the, the 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 congressional aspect was actually after the film JFK, which we've we've referenced in here before. I mean, the, the movie JFK, which, like I said earlier, if you haven't seen it, watch it. It's even if you think what we're talking about is a bunch of bullshit, and if you're sick of hearing about JFK, I mean, that's weird that you're on the sixth episode of this, but also. <laughs> even if you're like whatever this is all fiction man like yeah the dual nuts Yeah, we've is had real. a
1: couple of those patreon comments and i gotta say maybe you're you know take another listen
0: yeah listen to all 10 hours again <laughs> see if it sinks in uh but uh but jfk is like a good movie like it is an entertaining fucking movie oh yeah and Um, everyone's
1: in it i mean it's got you know all the stars all the stars
0: yeah i mean it's a it's a real uh real real hit parade but uh but that movie comes out in 1991 and that movie i mean takes a sort of you know it, it it basically tells the story of garrison's investigation um and uh and that is not the angle that you would have sort of assumed that a hollywood picture would take you know Maybe they'd have like uh, I am trying to think of what other media I've seen or like heard of that really involves the JFK. I know Stephen King like wrote a book about a time traveler going back in time to stop Lee Harvey Harvey Oswald. There was
3: the movie uh, I think it was Executive Action. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was called that basically depicted the the. Uh, it's not a good movie. I wouldn't recommend watching yeah, it. Yeah. It's not entertaining the way that JFK is. But it, but uh, but yeah, there were some there were some earlier ones. But yeah, definitely they were not as not as well received as JFK was.
0: Oliver Stone had high profile, uh, you know, sort of image as a filmmaker at that time, and this is a fucking opus, man. I mean, I think Nixon is a long movie too, but JFK Nixon
1: is is very long. Yeah, I gotta say,
0: didn't finish Nixon. I'll be real with you, I did not. That's the two tapes on the old VHS. Yeah, yeah. Uh, JFK though is like, I mean, we're talking fucking Hobbit one. Hobbit 2, where they're mean to the dragon, Hobbit 3, where they're also, I haven't seen any of the Hobbit movies, but I assume they're cruel to the, to the dragon who literally just likes gold, which is not like everyone in history is like gold. Mayans like gold, Europeans like gold, people love gold in the Far East. Ladies. Both ladies love gold, and for some reason it's <laughs> fucked up if a lizard does. Not my business. Um, but, uh, but it's a long fucking movie and it's good. And it tells the story really well. And, and like, like Aaron was saying earlier, like, you know, there's a lot of scenes in it that are like pretty much like word for word from transcripts that seem like they're scripts or something just because of how, you know, insane and incredible some of this stuff is, but that actually, I mean, that movie made it from what I can tell, uh, you know, I was only like 25 in 91. So I don't really (laughs) remember because I was experimenting a lot with ketamine. But uh, it, you know, it made a pretty big impact from what I can tell.
2: Yeah, I saw it in the theater, actually. I was in eighth grade, and my I, I went to go stay at my friend' house, My friend's house. Ben Motes is his name. I'm going to tell him you should listen to this. I haven't <laughs> talked to him in a long time, but he's a really nice guy. His parents were really nice. They took us to see this movie. And my mom worked for a congressman. So I was like more politically motivated or interested. And I watched her on Contra when I was a little kid. So I sort of knew about the dark side a little bit. And Vietnam, I knew about that. And this is movies talking about Vietnam. That's one of the things that it says. Um, so I thought it was like, I was like, that's the movie. It was really crazy. They obviously killed JFK. You know, <laughs> that was my takeaway from it. And uh, it, it only, it cost $40 million to make, grossed $205 million. Um, so that's a huge, you know, success. And the critics liked it generally, but the the biggest papers like the Times and the Post would write a lot of slanderous sort of articles about it. And it wasn't just the Garrison case. It was kind of like a combination of Garrison, but with a lot of the other things that researchers had learned over the years, some of it past Garrison and so on. So Garrison is used as sort of a, a cipher, I guess, to like get at the case. And because Garrison had already been sort of character assassinated so much, some of the work against Stone was already done, and they could just sort of build on that. But uh, a lot of critics did have really good things to uh, to, to say about it. Um, Roger Ebert said, and I mean, I think this is a great quote because he was, you know, Ebert had his his way of being pretty candid about things, and he said, "Do you know anyone who believes Oswald acted all by himself in killing Kennedy? I don't." I've been reading the books and articles for the last 25 years and I've not found a single convincing defense of the Warren Commission. The physical evidence makes its key conclusion impossible. One <laughs> man with one rifle could not physically have caused what happened on November 22, 1963 in Dallas. If one man could not have then there must have been two, therefore there was a conspiracy. So there were people in the media who were like pretty, you know, candid about the fraud that had been, you know, perpetrated. It's just that you're talking about really, you know, you're casting aspersions on our most powerful institutions. And I, I think it was George Lardner who who wrote, um, you know, if Oliver Stone is to be believed, then this is really going to cast disrepute on all of our most cherished institutions. And that's a very dubious public service. Oh
1: my. Oh no. <laughs> Can't have <Right>? that. <laughs> I would hate that. God forbid if there was too much disrepute on the New York times.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it, especially if you think of what Viet, what we did in Vietnam. I mean, killing like three point six million Vietnamese, two maybe a million Indonesians yep. in that era, two million Cambodians, uh, half a million, yeah. a million Laotians. This heroin trade that becomes a part. I mean, it's just like crimes that that just make the mind real, sort of. You just can't um, really conceptualize that sort of systemic, impossible evil. numbers. Yeah you can't wrap your mind around that sort of thing. And then people would be like, how dare you say that these forces would kill Jack Kennedy? You know, it's, it really makes no logical sense, but in a way it's like a, the story of denial uh, uh, in in civilization and empire that is, you know, sort of too typical of, of human, of human history where you you just can't see you're, you're so uh, embedded in the society and your sensibilities are shaped by it that you, you, some things you just can't, Conceptualize, and so you want to turn away, or you want to think of some weird, random theory, maybe, or you just, you know, you feel like you can't deal with it uh, on some level. So you just, you know, you, it's hard to get the will to do so.
0: I mean, my thing is, is man, like these people would like kick down your fucking thatched hut door. I mean, fuck, I guess they just walk through the entrance way and like throw a grenade onto like a family. I mean, you think they wouldn't kill one man or three men? uh eventually in Dallas, you know, that's ridiculous. Uh, it, it's like they've committed and like and this isn't just like I mean, I probably anyone listening to this realizes this, but like this isn't just like us being like, oh, you know, the, these guys did all these fucking unspeakable crimes. They did. These things happen. They happen in history. They're happening right now. You know, they've killed I I, I I don't know. I think Ben, you you asked on the internet the other day, like, what the fuck is these people's body count? And I thought about that for like a while. I was like, damn what what is the body count here? Because we have the actual, you know, you can get the numbers and add them up for all these different countries, you know, even if you're just going post-World War II, right? Like not even the slaughter of Native Americans, you know, the fucking enslaving Africans, all that kind of stuff. Even if you're just literally doing like the CIA national security establishment post-World War II and that millions, probably tens of millions of people that they've mm-hmm. slaughtered. Um, that's not even counting like the the- just the damage that they've done to other countries that have led to, you know, just awful fates and slavery for so many people, you know, the setting back countries that did, uh, you know, manage to shake them off. I mean, just the ecological damage they did to Vietnam alone, you know, the fucking, uh, the birth defects in Fallujah. I mean, these people are like, these people are more depraved than depravity allows me like that the word doesn't even work man like there isn't a word enough for him and so they're not gonna shoot jfk what are you fucking why wouldn't they shoot jfk there is no like it's 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 so inside the realm i mean it's so nestled deep within the realm of possibility that like i mean it, it it it's yeah, I, I, yeah, it, it, it boggles the mind that anyone could disbelieve it just on, on the face of like, oh, these, these institutions would never do something like this. They have done so many more. I mean, at least they shot him with a gun, right?
1: I think too that, like, I mean, to wrap it up, I, you know, I think Ben made a really good case in the first episode of why our like communist listeners should care about this, um, and maybe I can implore you to kind of restate that case because i have seen in comments to our series like kind of like echoing some of that kind of i i mean i you know i get it um or i get where it comes from but there's a little bit of a kind of like attitude of like well who cares about jfk or yeah i know the state is bad or oh my god oh blah 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 but like one of the things that i really like try to sit with too is that you know the assassination of JFK also made all of those deaths possible, right? It was like an essential step in the kind of, you know, in this last March of history that it was a required step in order for um, the like continued extermination of like tens of millions of people, (laughs) you know what I mean? And so like, it's really important to understand it for that reason. If you want to understand how the state has functioned in the past and now continues to function today. And if you don't understand how the state functions, then you have absolutely uh no no theory of the of power and and politics in in the contemporary world. Um I I don't know. I think that it's like, you know, you have to situate this event in context with all of that. You you can't just take it out as a kind of boomer meme. It's not a boomer meme. Um, it's a really, really important, important, like key factor in the consolidation of this kind of, I, it's not a counter revolution, but the right wing consolidation that happens between 64 and 81 is like a massive, important part of American history. If I mean, it's the most important part, uh, of, you know, contemporary history, I'd say.
3: Yeah, I would, I mean, from my point of view, you know, Kennedy's assassination was predetermined in many respects, right? I mean, there's no possible way the, um, you know, really this gets into like the root of capitalist crisis and the need for the expansion of, of the system of capitalism across the entire globe, right? You have, there must, you must pull in as much profit as possible and they're going to do it by going to these countries, getting their natural resources, exploiting their labor, super exploiting their labor, right? So the, the, there's no, there's no, there's no counterfactual here where yeah. JFK survives and somehow he, he manages to undo all of that. Like I don't think that that's possible, but I think the way that you framed it, Liz, which is that this is the extent to which uh, those elements are willing to go, right? Whether they're self-consciously saying, I'm preserving the system of capitalism by killing the president, right? The, the fact of the matter is he was an impediment to their pursuit of, of unfettered profit, even though what he was proposing, what he wanted um, was certainly not, you know, global communist revolution or anything like that. Right. He wanted, he, you know, he was, as I said, I think, uh, earlier, you know, he was a, he was an idealist in his own, uh, he was a realist in many ways, but also an idealist in the sense that he, he believed that sort of the free competition of nations and, and Aaron, you mentioned that term friendly competition, right. That was, that was Wallace's point of view as well. Um, you know, he thought that that was, that that was going to be the solution. Um, and uh, the, the forces that actually controlled the economy, the forces that actually controlled the state and the deep state, uh, there was no way that they were going to let him interfere with that. Um, and so he had to go. And I, I really think that, um, you know, when you... Uh, because there are plenty of world leaders also that I think we can look to and identify and say that these were not precisely, uh, you know, the the sort of national liberation national liberation communist leaders that we would have liked. Uh, nonetheless, their their assassination was a serious detriment to their people, to their nation.
1: Sure.
3: Uh, and and likewise, when we look at our own country, um, you know the the fact that a guy like Kennedy, who was who was frankly, you know, pretty conservative, for, is mm-hmm. for my taste certainly uh, the fact that even he was not acceptable. And the, specifically, I think that the mechanisms which killed him, right, these deep state elements, these intelligence apparatuses. Um, if you want to start to theorize about how do we get out of this mess that we're in, you have to understand those forces. Um and and uh in particular, I think people like Peter Dale Scott, who have taken the facts of the case and synthesized that and tried to come up with a theory about it, um, I think are are very important people to read to try to get to the root of uh of like I said, how we get ourselves out of this mess.
2: Yeah, I uh to to get back to what uh Liz and Grace, we're saying about a body count, you know, there's the 8 million give or take in Southeast Asia, which is pretty obvious, but the bigger, in the bigger picture, which is the most alarming is it's the most, um, it's something that it's not really reported that much, but the idea of structural violence, like the U S maintains this system, uh, this economic system that causes a, a, an enormous amount of death and immiseration around the world. And there were forces in American politics that wanted a different kind of world order like Henry Wallace. And then later, you know, you have like Eisenhower when he leaves, he gives his military industrial complex speech and that was informed by the work of C. Wright Mills. And C. Wright Mills wrote a book called uh, the causes of world war three, where he lays out a bunch of things that the U S could do to like solve some of the problems in the world. And they're very similar to what Wallace was calling for sharing technology, coming up with economic arrangements that don't involve consigning whole you know, post-colonial populations to debt peonage, and Kennedy was in his own way working towards those same kind of goals. Now, the fact that they don't go in that direction besides Vietnam, you know, and besides Johnson's reversal of uh, policy in, in Brazil and Congo, completely undoing what Kennedy had, had, had been trying to do, you have that system that, as Liz points out, emerges from 64 to, to 1981 or it really consolidates this new right-wing regime, and The structural violence that it uh, imposes upon countries year after year is, we don't, you can't say precisely what it is, but Peter Phillips, uh, sociologist, his book Giants, the Global Power Elite, points out that. There are, uh, you know, it's the, the number is like nine million people a day a year who die of preventable diseases, lack of access to potable water, lack of access mm-hmm. to food, and so this is like a nine. This is like a Holocaust year after year of poverty. And there's a paper that just came out in a in a journal. It's a peer reviewed article uh, called P- "Plunder in the Post Colonial Era," and um, he writes that according to our method, uh, we find that. Uh, in the most recent year of data the global north appropriated from the south commodities worth 2.2 trillion in northern prices enough to end extreme poverty 15 times over so the amount of wealth uh, that is taken in this neocolonial regime that is really global is uh, that's that kills people uh, to, to an extent you know a number of people that dwarfs v- Vietnam and uh, the southeast Asia um, and, and this is going on year after year um, over the whole period of 1960 to 2018. Um, drain from the south totaled 62 trillion, or if you account for the lost growth of you know if that that wealth had not been appropriated, mm-hmm. that would be 152 trillion dollars. So this, uh, and this is the system that's aggressively maintained, you know, that's what these overthrows are all about. These coups of putting in people like Suharto and Mobuto, uh, and the dictatorships in Brazil. Um, you know, it's really about maintaining this, this kind of, of system. And it's a huge source of wealth and power. And it really just continues colonialism, the dynamics of colonialism, uh, under another, under another name. And, um, so I, I think that getting rid of Kennedy and moving both parties to the right, which is what happens in the '70s and leading up to Ronald Reagan's election, that uh, this has been catastrophic for the global population. It, it should be better for Americans. We should have things like uh, you know universal health care and housing and no homeless people, uh, you know, and, and better education, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what it's meant for the people in the uh, formerly colonized countries is again one of those things that you can't even try to wrap your mind around even if i tell you nine million a year or whatever whatever it's like it that's so abstract and uh but it's that that's uh the way that uh you end colonialism after world war ii and yet things don't really change change that much and uh the kennedy assassination is a big part of that story and uh should make us very uh, you know worried about what will happen to other leaders who potentially could rally enough people to uh, to their to their side mm-hmm. if the system can even handle that now, which is to say that it's not too far gone and that it'll be foreign affairs that somehow lead to any change uh, presuming assuming that it doesn't lead to nuclear war at some point which is not something that you can uh, totally write off. But And the last thing that I will say is why you would want to study it is, and I, this is why I love that Oliver Stone is going back and visiting it, I think that a, if an event like this, if there were some sort of actual acknowledgement of what happened, something like that could be a dramatic event that might lead to a change in the culture and society to sort of pave the way for more dramatic changes. And perhaps some wealthy people who are thinking about the big picture and have some amount of political power might actually see that we're on a a terrible path and that the unthinkable which is like actually acknowledging some of the crimes of the state uh it it would actually be beneficial for america and the world and so you know perhaps more people understanding this stuff could actually be uh constructive and not just a strange sort of niche uh obsession for uh, people who are interested in deep politics
1: guys this has been a lot of podcasting <laughs>
0: it's been a lot of podcasting it's
1: been a lot of podcasting i to be honest i'm i can't believe we made it through but we did for now <laughs> but this has been uh totally fantastic i i really i mean i said this in the beginning but i really did never think we would touch the jfk assassination because it really is an intimidating topic and there's so much. I mean, I know we called it 101 and we co- it seems like we covered so much. How could this be a 101? I swear to God, there's so much we didn't cover. I mean,
0: my God, and, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we did really try as much as we could to kind of um, compartmentalize these into kind of larger topics to try to get some of the big hits out there because- for as much as we talked about, there's so, so much more. And we really do – I really want to encourage people to, you know, do the reading. <laughs> but actually, no, because the books are good. We've talked so much about Peter Dale Scott, who really is just such a fantastic um, fantastic resource and, and researcher and writer and theorist of the state. Um and, you know, there's been so much, uh, you know, obviously, we you know, we've talked about so many books, we we mentioned that on a couple of last episodes, so we don't have to reiterate it here. But um, I just want to thank you guys so much for coming on and doing this with us, because it really has been a dream to talk about this stuff and and really try to get it out there again into people's, you know, out in front of people's minds as not a meme, but actually something, you know, it's not grill-pilled to think about the, the Kennedy assassination. It's actually deeply political, you know?
2: Yeah, thanks. I, uh, in, a, in a strange way, I, I really enjoy this talking about this stuff. <laughs> I spent so, much, so many years studying it, and I didn't want to just study the assassination, but yeah. put it in the bigger picture. I hope that uh, it can illuminate things because it, it, did, it did for me in my thinking about uh, our, our political situation. And uh, so in a, in a maybe a sick way, I love, I love talking about this for 10 hours.
0: It's been a lot of fun. <laughs> I, w- I would, I would, I would like to thank you for uh, for introducing me to the fact that Leonard Cohen and Peter Dale Scott were friends and corresponded because that that blew my mind. That is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well. <laughs> Fellas, there's only one thing I can say at this point And, and lady too Thank you Although thank this you. maybe isn't the case for you But for us guys, the case is closed Whatever these women are getting pecking about this JFK thing <laughs> None of my business But I tell you, in the man cave Oswald did it Ruby killed him And uh, I'm just fucking with you The government did it
1: Yeah, it would take a bunch <laughs> of dudes to believe the dual nut theory like Yeah that
0: one? Mm-hmm. that one is for the <laughs> fellas <laughs> All right, guys. For now, au revoir.
1: I think Oswald did it. Yeah, oh, well, I mean, he did it, you know. Yeah, it's, but just by himself. It was just him.
0: But I, first of all, I said this f- episode one, and you were yeah. like, that's a fucking lie. And now the evidence has convinced you, right? He did it.
1: Well, I was just doing a little callback.
0: Oh, I feel like an asshole.
1: As you should. Yeah, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Liz. My name
0: is Brace. I'm not thanking you for listening. I'm just glad that you were able to share this experience with us. I feel like that's <laughs> a lot. That's a lot more smooth to say. Uh, we have Young Chomsky uh, as the producer, and the podcast is called True. Anon. The only thing that's not true about it is the part where we say that anyone but Oswald killed JFK.
1: <laughs> we'll see you next time. Bye bye. <laughs>